Our ushers are going to be bringing around Bibles, and uh, if you need one, please raise your hand. They would love to put one into your hand so that you've got God's Scripture in front of you. You can see where we're teaching from and the, where the things that we are uh, expositing are based. And so we hope that you'll open that up today as we study 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll be getting a new chapter this morning, so go ahead and open and, uh, and join us there if you will. Very grateful to have Miss Doris with us here this morning. Uh, it's been a blessing to be able to say hi to her. Praise God, Doris, that you're here with us this morning. Uh, as most of you know, she's been living up by Lincoln in a little town called Alta and uh, with her granddaughter, uh, but she's going to be moving to Missouri here pretty soon. Um, her daughter Erica lives there, and uh, there is uh, another granddaughter who's having a baby soon, so she wants to be around some family, and we're really excited for her to be able to make that transition. Of course, we're going to miss her, but well, make sure you say hi to Doris and spend some time with her um, before the morning is over. We love fellowshipping with the saints, and we know that we have an eternity to fellowship together with all those who call upon the name of the Lord. So in some ways, distance between believers is, is not a distance we can't overcome uh, because we have the promise of being together forever. But uh, we are grateful for the fellowship we have here as saints too. So let's take every advantage of that. I encourage you after the service is done uh, to stick around and talk to one another and to ask each other how your week has been and how the Lord's been working in your lives so that we might increase in friendship and in brotherhood uh, in enjoying the things that the world, uh, the world, the word is producing in us, and that the Son of God is bringing about in our lives. So, send me uh, somebody sent me a funny video this week. It was only about thirty or forty seconds long. It was a series of, of short clips, and these clips were of a, a young man and a young woman, happy, enjoying life together, uh, swinging on swings, sharing a coffee, exploring the marketplace. All the while, there's some nice soft music playing and then these little uh, bits of text going across the bottom of the screen. As the scenes pass by one at a time, these words pop up and say things like, I took for granted what we had together. We used to share such a bond. Our connection was a dream come true. And every one of those statements in the past tense, you might be thinking, Pastor Nick, that doesn't sound like a funny video at all. You know how that's going to end, right? It's probably going to end with my, my tears flowing down my face because something tragic happened. and So I'm getting emotionally invested in this video. I want to see what, what's, what's wrong with this couple, why things have changed. And then the, the whole thing changes in the last scene as the wife is then videotaping with her cell phone, her husband with a headset on, a little mouthpiece, sitting in front of the, the TV playing his video games. She says, it all changed when I bought you that update to Call of Duty Modern Warfare. And so... Now the idea is he's spending all of his time in front of the TV playing this video game. He's so wrapped up in it that they don't have time for one another anymore. So it is in some sense a funny video. It's also in some sense a sad video uh, because we hate when you give somebody a gift thinking it's going to give them joy, but then it ends up backfiring and it ends up hurting the greater gift, which is the relationship that you have with them. This is similar in some regards to the passage we're going to be studying today in the scripture. God has given believers an excellent gift, a gift meant to be a blessing to us. The believers in Corinth had been using that gift, but they had been using it in the wrong way, and they'd been using it for the wrong reasons. So it was becoming more of a hindrance to them than it was a help. So what is that gift? What gift had God given to these believers? It is the gift of knowledge. God has given knowledge not only to the Corinthians, but to every spirit-filled believer in Jesus Christ. Knowledge that should be a considerable blessing to us. The mystery of the gospel has been revealed. It is no longer 
a, a, a hidden mystery that we cannot understand. By the work of the Holy Spirit, our eyes which were blind can now see. Our hearts which were hard and could not receive can now be soft and compassionate to the truths of our own sin and to the re resolution of that sin in Jesus Christ and His sacrifice. By knowledge of Him, we're given the opportunity to understand our God, our Creator, and to appreciate Him in ways that we never could have before Christ came into our lives. Because of knowledge, we are better equipped to serve the Lord and to be a blessing and a benefit to others and to His kingdom. You can see how this knowledge should have been a considerable blessing to the church at Corinth. But for that church, it has turned out to be a negative. It has made them proud. It has caused them to become calloused to one another. Knowledge has helped them to justify on an intellectual level behavior that may make certain individuals happy, but is doing so at the expense of the health and the spiritual well-being of other weaker members of the body of Christ. And so this is the problem. The solution to that problem is twofold. The Corinthians must begin to view the gift of knowledge with a different attitude. Their idea, their view of knowledge has got to change. And then secondly, they need to use the gift of knowledge for the right purposes. They've got to put it into action in a way that God intended them to use it. So what we're going to do today is uh, we're in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, and it is not a long chapter. Uh, so it represents kind of a shift of gears for Paul. He's, he's addressing some certain scenarios in the Corinthian church one at a time. We've just finished up with one scenario, so he's going to move into another one. So what we're going to do today is we're only studying verses 1 through 3 this morning, but I'm going to read the whole chapter. That's going to help us to get a more sturdy context for what we're going to study together. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offering to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many quote-unquote gods, and many quote-unquote lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom all things exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak to eat food that is offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Father, I praise you for the word that you have given to us today, and I ask that as we gather together, 
that we would trust the work of the Holy Spirit within us to understand this well, but to do more than just know it, Lord God. Help us to take this to heart so that it might flow out of our actions and our words and our deeds. God, we want to be a people who are doers and not just hearers of your holy word. And so I ask, Lord God, that you would help us to have a right perspective upon knowledge by the time we leave this place, God, that you would humble us and bring us low before you and that we would also develop a greater love for your saints, for the brothers and sisters to whom we belong now under one Father, that we might use our knowledge for their blessing and benefit and not simply for our own purposes or, or means. We thank you, God, for all that you do for us, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We begin by noting a distinct shift in topic here in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. We are no longer thinking through the merits of marriage or staying single. We've talked quite a bit about that, whether it is best to devote your whole time and focus on the Lord Jesus Christ or whether it is acceptable and pleasing to the Lord to take a wife or a husband and to live your life connected to them and in covenant with them as well. But now we are turning our eyes on new things. There was clearly some discussion in a previous letter that the Corinthians had sent to Paul about what kinds of foods were appropriate for the believers in Corinth to eat. The first part of Corinthians 8, 1 says, Now concerning food offered to idols. The issue that Paul is now going to address was a very big deal at the time, but it does not translate so easily into our modern culture. So it might be hard for us to make the connection here. So we've got to take a second to get on the same page with Paul that we might historically understand what he's trying to talk about. As you are likely aware, Rome was not too radically a different place from the Western culture we live in today. Sin abounded. There were several philosophies and ways of life that people could try to adhere to. And there were a, plentif a plentiful amount of gods around that people could choose to worship. They were polytheistic in Rome, meaning that they believed there were gods for all sorts of things. And depending on which thing interested you the most, you might put your focus and your attention on worshiping one god or another god. How they went about worshiping this cornucopia of gods is, however, quite different than what you would observe in our day and age today. To worship, uh, these Romans would go and offer sacrifices to whatever god they wanted to please. And they would do so either conventionally at the various pagan temples scattered around Corinth, or they would do it as a part of a greater celebration festival that would include social gatherings and various activities that would build community with the, the followers of that false god in that community. These animal sacrifices were typically divided in three different portions. A third of the animal that was brought and, and given in tribute to this god was burned to that god, was incinerated on the altar. A third of it was given to the priesthood that conducted the worship services at such and such temple. That was kind of like their, their, uh, their wage for leading the worship of this God. And then a third of that offering would be taken back by the one giving the offering. It would usually be eaten um, in some sort of a, a, a ceremony at the home with the family in worship to that God. Now, man cannot live off of meat alone, so those pagan priests would often sell their portions of the sacrifice in the local marketplace. They'd go down to the butcher shop and often they had a deal set up so that their portions of the meat could be exchanged for other goods or for money so that that priest could go and sustain his family. And then that meat would then be sold to the general population in the city. If that was all going on outside of the church, then why is it becoming a problem inside of God's church? 
For some, especially for Gentile converts, those who had grown up in the Roman culture and were not Jewish by ethnicity, whether or not to eat this meat that was sacrificed on a foreign altar to a false god and then brought to a temple marketplace and sold in a butcher shop, whether or not to eat this meat was a matter of the conscience. Having lived their whole lives giving offerings like these to these false and powerless gods, but having now converted to worship of Jesus Christ, the one true God, these Gentile believers might very well feel as though any semblance of participation in pagan worship would be an insult to the true God that they now worship, who had washed them clean of their sin and had given them eternal life. And so there were two conflicting views on what to do about this dilemma about meat sacrifice to idols. For the newly converted, the typical response was, don't risk it, don't eat that meat. It could cause you to stumble. It could make you think about your former life so much that you might fall back into the worship of that God, which would be like committing adultery against the God that you've given your life to now. For those experienced Christians who had a more clear picture of what was going on, who understood that there is only one true God, they might think, what's the big idea? Eat whatever you want. There is no true God but the one true God. These temples are powerless. So eat, be merry, exercise your freedom. We're going to focus on the resolution of that debate in a couple of weeks. Though having a basic background of it was necessary to set the stage for what we're going to discuss today. In the meantime, in these first few verses, the Apostle Paul is going to speak to an underlying systemic problem in Corinth. And that would be the issue of whether or not to eat meat sacrificed to an idol was truly a symptom or whether it was the cause. It should be no surprise to us that the cause is deeper. It is rooted in the hearts of these Corinthians. And this systemic problem that has to do with the Corinthians concerns their knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge has been central as a reoccurring theme in this letter to the Corinthian church. You might remember in chapter 1, verses 4 through 7, the Apostle Paul writes, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all what? Knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking any gift. So true knowledge has been given to these believers. They have been granted a wisdom and an enlightenment that they could not have attained on their own, but they are not using this gift in a correct way. So Paul goes on in chapter 1 to point out that their quarrels over which teacher in Corinth is the best teacher, which teacher was the one that they should follow, which one was the most knowledgeable and the most wise, had caused divisions and fractions in their community. As part of his instruction to the Corinthians, Paul describes the nature of true godly wisdom, and how it compares to the wisdom of the lost and divided world. Chapter 1, verses 18. For the word of God, the word of the cross, is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? So having been given a new heart through salvation, Paul urges that it is only fitting for these Corinthians to put behind them their worldly ways of thinking as well and begin to see the knowledge and wisdom that they have in the light of Christ's grace towards them. 
Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see how strong this theme of wisdom carries on through the book. The knowledge that God has given the believer is a good and useful gift, but it cannot compare to God's better wisdom. Man's wisdom is limited. It is fallible compared to God's. And therefore, their gifts, though from the Lord, must remain subservient to their greater knowledge and wisdom that God has over them. Verse 26 goes on to talk about how God did not choose many people among the Corinthians who would be considered wise and intelligent by worldly standards. God instead chose those who seemed foolish to the world in order that His wisdom might abound in them. And Paul then points out that the example of the apostles has been that of humility rather than pride in knowledge. So the leaders who taught them this gospel were not boastful about their wisdom, but rather they boast only and ever in Christ. They focused on Jesus and his crucifixion and resurrection. In fact, their single-mindedness regarding the gospel of Jesus might have in fact caused other people to think that they were simple and foolish. Paul did this so that their faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in God himself. So the rest of chapter 2 then goes on to assure that the wisdom of a Christian does receive, the, the wisdom that a Christian does receive from God is in fact a lofty wisdom. It is a resource beyond compare. Those who do not have the Holy Spirit by regeneration can't even begin to fathom the depth of what a Christian can know in Christ. And so godly wisdom is on a completely different level than the knowledge that man can come up with through his own studies, through his own contemplations. And then in chapter 3, verses 18 through 19, he says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. As Paul introduces the issue of whether the Corinthians should abstain from meat sacrifice to idols, he's laid the groundwork for the point that he's about to make here in verses 1 through 3. Now up to this point, We've already seen that the Corinthians held to a number of slogans. These pithy phrases were easy to remember, and they were sort of uh, uh, like, like little confessions of their practical theology, the way that they actually applied the things that they believed. Uh, the Corinthians would have been professionals at putting together good-selling T-shirts with little slogans and bumper sticker sayings on them. Uh, and so the Apostle Paul interacts with these slogans. He, he brings them to light and then he responds to them and helps these Corinthians to see whether they're useful or whether they're harmful to the people there. And one of those slogans is the assertion recorded here in verse 1. All of us possess knowledge. So apparently this is one of the sayings that the Corinthians would proclaim, especially those who felt unburdened and felt like they could go and eat whatever they wanted to eat their idea was all of us possess knowledge since every Christian's been given the Holy, the Holy Spirit and a new lease on life, a new perspective, then let us just eat what we want. Let us do it in freedom because God has set us free. Is there anything so wrong about that slogan? Any person who is in Christ has been giving something special, haven't they? Without exception, their wrong view of God's holiness, their wrong view of their own sin, has been exchanged for a new perspective. It's been traded for a greater wisdom, an enlightenment that helped them to see life through an eternal set of glasses, through a lens that meant more than just what we see in this world. They've been transformed by the renewing of their minds. So in many ways, the slogan is a correct slogan, but the application of that slogan is proving problematic among the saints in Corinth. 
for many of them, since every Christian has the Holy Spirit and the ability to see and understand the truth that was formerly a mystery to them, they felt justified in exercising many freedoms regardless of the fact that doing so might have a damaging effect on some of the younger Christians in that community who were still in some regards immature and had much to learn. I know that there's no such thing as a false god. Therefore, it doesn't matter whether or not I attend these pagan festivals and eat the meat there. It doesn't matter whether I buy those, those pieces of meat sold in the marketplace because they weren't sacrificed to real gods anyway. That sounds right and good if you understand great and deep things about God. But not every believer was equally confident in that view. And those who were not seeing... Those who are not, were seeing other Christians attending these pagan meals, buying meat from the butcher shops that were connected to these pagan temples in Corinth, and it was causing them to wonder if Christianity was really about the exclusive worship of God or not. Was Christianity just another polytheistic religion where you can worship this God if you want for this week and that God later and a different God for a different circumstance? Do all of us possess knowledge if we are in Christ? The answer is a resounding yes. Do any of us in Christ possess all knowledge? The answer to that is absolutely no. None of us has all knowledge. All of us are learners. All of us are still striving to attain more understanding and information about our God. Do many of us possess less knowledge than others? And the reality is that yes, many of us do. Not everyone has the same level of learning when it comes to the understanding of Christ and how to apply that to our lives. So as we will see in the next few weeks, in the Corinthian, if the Corinthians only answer the question, am I free to eat this kind of meat? Then that would leave a much more important question unanswered. Is it best for me to eat this kind of meat? Is it loving for me to participate in these festivals? Is it considerate? to my weaker and younger brothers in the faith for me to go around exercising my freedom, even if it's delicious, even if it's a lot of fun? Is it better for me instead to consider them above my own desires? Many of the Corinthians did have knowledge, but their attitude towards that knowledge had produced an undesired result in their lives. This knowledge was puffing them up. It was inflating them. And that is a fitting choice of words by Paul here. To be puffed up is to be artificially great, to appear to be bigger and more substantial than you actually are. If any of you uh, has ever been around a small dog that felt threatened, what does that dog physiologically do when he feels threatened by another dog? He puffs up his hair, right? Their hair stands on end and this little tiny thing begins to look just a little less tiny than it was before. Is that dog truly a dangerous threat? Not to a big dog but it looks a little more dangerous when it's puffed up, doesn't it? That's a perception. It's not a reality. And so these Corinthians were being puffed up with a knowledge, thinking that they understood things clearly, but what they really failed to understand was the importance of loving your neighbor so that you can properly love your God. When evaluating knowledge, we need to think carefully about two factors. Where does that knowledge come from? How do we acquire that knowledge? And then secondly, where does it lead to? What should it result in? If we have this knowledge, how is it going to impact the way that we live our lives? How do I corroborate these two points with the ideas of humility and love that we're going to be focusing on today? First, 
considering where our knowledge comes from and what it's supposed to be used for, our attitudes towards knowledge must be that of humility. Humility. If anyone imagines that he knows something, verse 2, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Now this is a truth that we hear echoed in secular places around the world as well. Wasn't it Socrates who said, the one thing I do know is that I do not know? So great minds around the world, people who have been influence, uh, influencing humanity over the decades and eons, have come to realize that if you really want to know something, the first thing you need to understand is your own personal limits. You've got to recognize that there are limits to what you know and that there is more for you to learn. What does it take to be an expert on a given subject, to be a master of a certain field. I've heard people speculate several theories. I heard one person say that it takes 10,000 hours of practice before you can really consider yourself a true expert on something. Some people think that as long as you've got a PhD in front of your name, then that means you've gone through a significant amount of schooling, you've made a great investment in your education, so that means you must be an expert in that field. Other people think that you've got to make a significant contribution to or have some kind of documented success in whatever field you want to be considered an expert in. But a true expert has this in mind. A firm grasp on the scope of the subject matter that is realistic enough that they won't fool themselves into believing that there's not much more that they need to learn about that topic. An expert needs to know that there is still much that he or she does not know about the thing that she wants to understand. So the more that you know, the more you realize you are far from mastering the topic. In regards to God, the more you know, the more you realize you can never fully know because the depths of God's riches are unsearchable. He is greater than we can even fathom. So to help us grasp this humble attitude towards our knowledge, it, it will help us to consider the origin of every spiritual truth that we rightfully call our own. Where does a Christian's knowledge come from? Does it come properly from study? Does it come properly from vast observation about the world? Does it come properly from our own meditation and rolling ideas around in our own head? If we are honest, friends, our knowledge of God has to and must only come, first and foremost, from God. It is given by God not acquired by man. Now that's totally contrary to conventions, right? Those standards that I just shared with you about being an expert in a field all had to do with the man's work to attain knowledge. And yet if you know the God of all creation, your primary knowledge of that God comes not from your own study or deduction, it comes from the gift of him revealing himself to you. Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 through 17. God has just asked his disciples, who do people think that I am? Uh, several different theories have been relayed to him from his disciples. And then he points the question squarely at those who are following him. He says, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The disciples had come to understand that Jesus was not just another prophet. He was not just some specialized rabbi. He was truly the Son of God in the flesh. And in verse 17, Jesus answered to him. He said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
What does it mean by flesh and blood there? That means that Peter did not come to this conclusion, nor did the other disciples, because of careful study and examination, because they weighed all of the evidence and decided for themselves, yep, this must surely be the one. Because there were plenty of other people seeing the same evidence that the 12 disciples got to see. There are plenty of other witnesses to the miracles and the miraculous signs that Christ did. So why did Simon believe? Why did these other disciples believe when so many others turned away and walked away from Jesus? They believed because of a work that God was doing inside of their hearts. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. They didn't obtain it from another wise person. It wasn't granted to them by a guru or by a professor. God in heaven gave them the knowledge that they needed to understand that Christ was truly Messiah. 1 Peter 2.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is a wisdom that comes from above. It is not something that we generate ourselves or come up with. This is godly wisdom, imparted, not earned. For those of you who have been with us for a while, we studied through Ecclesiastes a couple of years ago. Ecclesiastes set forth a powerful example of this truth. Solomon has thoughts. Solomon has questions. Though he is the wisest man in the land, there's still much he needs to learn. And so he sets out to fill in the gaps of his knowledge. He wants to understand if what he has learned is the only truth. And so he tries to attain more experience. He tries to observe more of the world. He tries to live according to the philosophies of those who do not yet know God to see if there's any merit to those ways of living. Ecclesiastes 1.13, he says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So the bulk of Ecclesiastes is Solomon the preacher seeking the wisdom of the world by man's devices and then coming up short. Nothing that man can come up with compares to the wisdom that God has imparted to those who believe. Along the journey, it has brought him to an increasingly humble state of mind. The end of Solomon's journey is not one of personal triumph. It does not culminate in self-actualization, as you might have learned about in your philosophy classes or psychology classes in school. All of his striving has simply affirmed the simple truth that he had at the beginning of his journey, fear God, keep his commandments. Look at verse 13 through 14 of Ecclesiastes. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is not a simple man who's coming to this conclusion. We know that Solomon had been given as a gift of God an abundance of wisdom. In humility, he had asked God that God might make him wise so that he would do a good and faithful job of leading the nation of Israel. And God granted him that humble request. And this man who exceeded all in wisdom and intelligence, when it all boils down to it, understands this. I don't know as much as God knows. So no matter how much I obtain, I must trust him. Because our knowledge is always limited knowledge, it must remain subject to refinement. We have to be willing to let our knowledge be improved upon. We cannot be so smug as to think that we know all that we need to know. The one who thinks he is done learning has much to learn. Of course, we should want to know. We should desire greater knowledge. Just because knowing God is not easy, that doesn't mean that we don't need to pursue it. 
The knowledge of God is a lofty and difficult thing. Any spiritual knowledge that we have is given by God, not earned by us, but we should keep asking God that He would grant us with more of that knowledge. James 1, 5-8 through 8 says, If any of you lacks, lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And you often hear this passage preached, and the faith that those uh, misled souls think you're supposed to have here is faith in what you asked for. Where's our faith supposed to be? Is it in what we ask for, or is it in the one that we're asking? Our faith is in God. So as long as our faith is in the one who has the power to give, then whatever he gives should be enough for us. Staying undefiled from the lost world through which we pilgrim is, is much more doable if we strive to know what we can know about God and about man. And this is part of why we are using catechisms on Sunday nights now. They're an effective tool to help us connect the dots between the things that we know to build a greater, more comprehensive, refined understanding of this God who loves us so well. But the man who thinks that he has studied until he has nothing left to learn is a proud and self-centered man who needs to get to know himself a little better. Your goal in building your theology of God is, is not to be finished building your theology of God. You will never be done knowing about this God. You will never have attained enough to be satisfied and to rest upon your laurels. For there is infinitely more for you to discover of your God than you will ever have the capacity to acquire or fully appreciate. This is a well without end. Psalm 139.17 says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Is the knowledge of God precious to you? Precious enough to know that even though you will never be done with the task, that every day you set your mind about knowing Him better, drawing nearer to Him, appreciating your knowledge of Him all the more. Let us be confident in what God has revealed to us. But let us also be humbled by the fact that our greatest thoughts of God are primitive at best compared to the complexity and detail of His infinite being. There is always room for us to know more about our God and to know what we know of Him with greater accuracy, with greater depth, with finer detail. So church, we must be very careful about becoming too dogmatic about things. To be dogmatic is to hold views as though they are unquestionably true, even though they may be difficult to defend with facts. You see this often in, in every different kind of faith. The Roman Catholic Church has some examples for us. You might have heard of doctrines such as purgatory, the idea that there is a middle staging ground where people are, are having to pay for parts of their sin that the cross didn't cover. That's not justifiable in Scripture. You can't find that in the Word of God, and yet many people hold to it. Why? Because it's been taught for them for so many years. Because it's been pushed as a truth over and over again, dogmatically, but without proper grounding in Scripture. So dogmatism has inherent challenges. When you just think what you think because you think it and not because the Lord has revealed it in His Scripture, it tends to act as though there, there's nothing more to be learned when in reality there is. A dogmatic approach can cause us to become boastful to our own view and our own interpretation, thinking that it's the only acceptable perspective regarding knowledge of things that are greater than ourselves. Now, I caution you. This is not a justification to have a maybe faith. You know what a maybe faith is? A maybe faith is... I think maybe these things could be true, and 
And I'm just happy to think that these are all possibilities. And I've got all these ideas and these, these, these concepts floating in my mind. I don't have to really nail anything down. I just, I love to think about the possibilities of God. That's not the faith that we've been called to, friends. Christianity is not merely an exercise in endless contemplation. It's not a constant wondering about God. God wants us to know Him and to know Him confidently. Think of all the commands that God gives us, like stand in the truth, endure to the end, hold fast to what you have been shown, proclaim what is good, expose what is evil. It is hard to do these things without a sense of confidence that what we are proclaiming is true, that what we are holding fast to is sure. But knowing that he is great must always be coupled with the undeniably true fact that we are little compared to him. And what we know and hold to may be subject to refinement. This humility and knowledge is particularly crucial when we're dealing with issues that are somewhat debatable, such as whether or not it is best to eat food sacrificed to idols, such as what is the proper way to view the finer details of eschatology and the return of Jesus Christ, such as whether do we are to take wine or juice at communion, how, such as how to apply Sabbath principles in the New Covenant era. These are all things that we can talk about, things that we can, we can argue about and disagree about as brothers who love one another and want to learn more. None of these topics is inconsequential, but without a loud and clear singular solution that is not only biblically defensible, but biblically obvious, then we need to strive for the kind of humility that would afford grace to others who do not see things the way that we see them ourselves. Not only should we put up with others who think differently about ourselves, about these certain uncertain aspects of faith, but we should be willing to listen to them and to engage in friendly debate and discussion so that we might both gain more knowledge than we currently have. Now, if humility should be the defining attitude of our knowledge, then how should we want to know? How should we try to know God? We should try to know God with a great sense of wonder and appreciation. We should, we should try to know God with a, with a humility that recognizes His grandeur, that looks upon Him as holy and utterly greater than ourselves. We should try to approach knowledge with a sense of gratitude, knowing that if it wasn't for His gift, we wouldn't have a chance to know Him at all. How many people do you know who could think circles around you when it comes to academia or facts or memorizing things or, or, or comprehending equations, yet they cannot grasp the divine truths of God's reality. I'm sure there are many that you can think of in your mind right now, people who are, by the measures of the world, far more intelligent than you, and yet they cannot see the obvious, beautiful truth that Jesus Christ is the only way to redemption. Let us be humble in our pursuit of knowledge, knowing that if it wasn't for the grace of God, we would be just as lost and confused. We would be just as, as prone to wandering. We would be just as convinced about things that have no basis, that we should not be comforted in if it wasn't for the grace of Jesus Christ. So with appreciation and wonder, we approach the knowledge of God. We do it acknowledging our own personal limits. There are things that you believed fervently five years ago that you believe differently today that you have come to see in a better light because of your constant exposure to Scripture. And praise God for that refinement. Praise God that we don't, aren't just left at the state in which we are saved, but that God continues to bring us along and to give us a clearer picture of who He is 
So come to the knowledge of God with this humility, knowing that I want to know God the best I can right now. And perhaps in time, God will help me to know him even better. And if that is the case, I need to be gentle-hearted about that. I should not push back against God refining me and trimming thoughts out of my mind that don't belong there or even correcting me with rebuke if necessary so that I will love the things that are truly good and the ways that he has called me to love them. How should we know God? We should know him with the humble understanding that everything we have has been given to us as a gift. That it is not something that we scratched and clawed and, and reached more for than the person next to us. It's something that God has, has deposited into us because of his loving mercy. Again, just because coming to know a thing isn't easy, it is necessary that we seek to know all that we can of this God. But gaining knowledge, friends, increasing in what we know is not the ultimate goal. Rather, our ultimate goal should be an ends to a greater purpose, an ever-growing love for this God, and a love that by its very nature results in a love for what God loves, a love for our neighbor. You see, knowledge isn't the end. You know who probably knows more about God than you do? Satan. Satan probably knows a pretty good deal more about God than you do. He's been around him for ages. He has observed the church, hoping to destroy it. He has watched God work. He has seen firsthand what God can do. Does that mean that his better knowledge means that he's more prone to saving? Absolutely not. He might know more about, you, about God than you do, but that doesn't do him any eternal good, does it? All of that knowledge has done nothing profitable for Satan. He's no closer to salvation than what, uh, for what he knows of God. So knowledge in and of itself cannot be the end game. It should be a sobering and maybe a frightening reality for us that you can know so many facts about God and still not have a redeemed relationship with Him. We are saved by grace through faith and not by our works, including our intellectual works, so that no one can boast. Works would include knowledge without love. So to love God and to love one another must be important to us than acquiring more knowledge. Again, verse 1 of chapter 8, this knowledge puffs up, but love does something greater. Love builds up. If anyone is, loves God, verse 3, he is known by God. So Paul's emphasis here is on shifting our attitude and our attentions away from what we can acquire and towards the object of acquiring it, which is a love for the the God who is the subject of our, our knowledge. By itself, apart from faith and love, your knowledge is not a benefit to you. James 3.13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. In other words, he who knows but does nothing about his knowledge, he who understands things about God but does not act in faithful obedience to God, is wasting his time and spinning his wheels. You have heard it said that knowledge is power, and in some ways... It is, but you know that there is a, a power greater than knowledge. And that power is love, friends. Love for God. Faith in God, just like knowledge of God, is rooted in what we have discovered, or not rooted in what we have discovered. It is rooted in what has been given to us. It cannot begin our reasoning processes. Listen to 1 John 4, verse, 4, uh, verse 19. It says, We love... Because he first did what? 
because he first loved us. Who starts this process? God starts the process. Man does not start the process. And when immediately John connects this with the evidential love that we are to have for one another, we see the importance of loving not only God, but loving our neighbor. He says in verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this command we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So God comes to a lost sinner, comes to a faithless rebel. He graciously grants that faithless rebel with faith. This faith can have only one result. Anyone who has faith in God and believes he is who he says he is will, of course, love that God. And in loving this God in whom we have faith, we will see his gracious love for others, for sinners just like ourselves, and we will then, because of our love for him, love one another. That's just simply how it works, friends. Compare this to the, pro the product of a puffed-up knowledge that lacks humility. How is it different? Puffed-up knowledge is self-serving. It does the exact, exact opposite of exalting God. Puffed-up knowledge makes one own, one's own accumulated knowledge the object of exaltation. Why? Do you want to know God because you love Him? Or do you love knowing about God because of the power that it gives you? That's a question we need to ask ourselves. Do you want to know more about God because you love Him or because you love the power that it gives you over others to know more than they do about God? Would we even use our knowledge, friends, our, our knowledge of God as an arena in which we would prove our own greatness like some sort of intellectual gladiator? We cannot afford to make this mistake. Isn't that the modus operandi of the rich young ruler that Jesus encounters in Matthew 19. He comes to Jesus. He asks him a question. First, he flatters him a little bit, says, good teacher. And then he says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Jesus then cites a few of the Ten Commandments that would have obviously been familiar to this young Jewish man. And the young man's ecstatic to hear these things. That's what he wanted to hear because in his mind, He's already proven himself. He thinks that he's done all these things, that he has kept those commandments. So his question was not really presented to Jesus so that he might learn. It was more presented to Jesus so that he might boast about what he has accomplished. Jesus then points out to him that there's one last thing that is missing. He tells him, what you need to do now is sell all that you own, give all your profits to the poor, and then come and follow me. What is that a command to do? It's a command to be humble and to love, isn't it? Now, that's not a universal command. That's not like how you get into heaven, friends. But Jesus knew the heart of this young man. He knew that he had come to Jesus not to receive, but to show off. And so Jesus said, how much can you really show off? Sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow after me. Have humility and have love and care about what really matters. And this young man we know could not do it. He could not find the strength in himself to give up those things that he'd worked so hard for. And so he walked away sad. Now, how many of us, friends, if we were before Jesus and he said to us, give up your knowledge, give up your reputation for being right, give up your pride in knowing more than others, if that's what Christ required of us, would we have a hard time letting it go and following Jesus? Would we lay that down at God's feet? 
our knowledge can become like an idol to us. An idol that we worship, an idol that we prize even more than we prize the object of the knowledge, which is Jesus. So puffed up knowledge adds not for love, but for the sake of having more than someone else. When you think this way, when you don't have humility in your knowledge, and when your knowledge is not tempered by a love for God and a love for others, then what you know of God becomes trivial. You begin to just want to know all the little detailed facts, not because you love the Lord God and you rejoice in those details, but because you just want to have answers when people ask you questions. What you know of God becomes like ammunition to tear others down and to make them feel foolish so that you, can, you yourself can feel like a, a substantial and great human being. When the self becomes the focus of knowledge and the mind tends to see knowledge, by the way, as malleable, when you begin to become self-centered in your, your focus on how much you know, then it becomes really easy then to twist facts around so that they all match what you say that you know. Knowledge itself stops being that standard by which you judge even your own thoughts and, and, and actions, and it becomes the framework that you're building to make yourself look bigger. That's what puffed-up knowledge accomplishes. This kind of knowledge feeds the poison of original sin in us. That original sin in the garden offered by the serpent was that if you eat of the tree of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil, if you break the one command that God gave to you, then you can actually be like God is. You can obtain omniscience as God has, an all-knowing power. The, the sad irony of that is that God had already made man in his image. So in some ways he was like God. He reflected the beauty and the truth of God. He was a representative of, of God in the creation. He had been given dominion and power and authority over the things that God had made. There was always already so much honor that, that Adam had in the creation. And yet this temptation to have more, to be only what God can be, was original sin. It's a defiling factor in Adam's life. And so when we allow knowledge to puff us up and we put love to the side, then we fall. But true knowledge, the knowledge that God affords to us, doesn't puff us up, it builds up. It builds up those around us. Mutual edification should be at the heart of our intentions, church. The word there is, is a construction word. Edification means that we support and build something so that it might have a solid foundation and an enduring structure. So as people who are in the body of Christ, we should be looking always to build one another up, to help each other become stronger in what we know and how we understand the Lord God, that we should become stronger in our love for the Lord. And when we use our knowledge in combat against one another to make each other feel stupid or to make ourselves look like the hero, then we're not doing that to edify anyone. We're not doing that to build a brother up. We're simply doing that to exalt ourselves. Who needs edification? Not God, right? Christ is cornerstone. He's already solid. So this love that's being spoken of here in the first three verses of Romans chapter 8, or it's not Romans chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, is directed to the edification that the saints need, that we need to become stronger, that we need help to build one another up in Christ that we were always pointing each other towards the source of our, our, our faith and our hope. So the love in mind here is not first commandment love, it is second commandment love, love for one another. If my actions, even based on good personal understanding and knowledge, do you harm, if my actions tear you down, I have not acted in love. So I have misappropriated whatever knowledge the Lord has blessed me with. I have misused and abused the gift that he has given to me. 
How do I use the gift of knowledge to edify a brother or sister rather than tear them down? Rather than exalting myself over them, how do I lift them up? Let me give you a few suggestions before we wrap this up this morning. I think one of the first things we can do is consider their condition. That is precisely what the Corinthians were not doing to one another, considering the position of those weaker brothers and sisters who did not yet have a full comprehensive understanding of the exclusivity of God in the universe. We need to consider the state of our brother and sister. We need to ask ourselves, how far along are they in the path of of, of righteousness? How much has God already grown in them? Can they understand this great concept or do we need to work through it very carefully and slowly? Do we need to come at it with gentleness or can we just rush through? Can we be quick in this? Can I point out a thing that they should already have known or is this new fertile ground for them where we need to sow new seeds of, of understanding? Patience is key here. Remember that even if you are an elder, even if you are wise in years, you didn't get to where you are immediately. It took God time to sanctify you as well. So how selfish it would be for us to think that we can rush another brother along in their own sanctification when it has taken years, sometimes decades, for God to open our eyes to what we owe today. So be considerate of the condition of your brother or sister as you edify them in the truth. Secondly, teach them, friends. Not just to show them what you know, but to help them know it too. There is a difference there, do you understand? Godly knowledge is not just a display. Godly knowledge is a help that should increase a brother or sister's love for the Lord and appreciation for what he has done. Edification is not just you showing others what you have gotten, It is a sharing of information. And brothers and sisters, this is why I I can't stress it enough, but the classroom cannot offer what the church can offer. Seminaries are wonderful. Um, There is room for Bible colleges. That's fine. But when you're in the church, you walk side by side with one another every day. So you have a greater opportunity to not only show what you know, but to give what you know to others, to come alongside a brother and sister who is weaker in faith and to day by day implant them with the knowledge that has been given to you, transfer that to them so that they might grow as you're growing. Your your end goal should be that they might even know the Lord more than you do. And that happens best in the church, friends. It doesn't happen best in a seminar or over a, a Zoom meeting. It happens best when we live life together, when we care enough about each other that the only time we see each other is not just Sunday morning, but we have each other over at each, house, uh, each other's houses, that we're going to our, our friends' kids' soccer games, that we're interacting on a regular basis so that this love that God has given to us can be caught in the ways that we live our lives. And then finally, let them see not only the fine details of the information, but let them see in you, not just your knowledge, but your love for the God who has given you this knowledge. For if they are truly to know God, then they must love Him. They must pursue Him with an affection, with a faith that desires to know more. Otherwise, we might just be training up tomorrow's Pharisees, friends. The more we try to pour wisdom and understanding into people's hearts, if there is no love behind that wisdom and understanding, we might just be making the next wave of proud individuals that uses God's knowledge for their own benefit, but not for the edification of God's church. In the next few chapters of the letter, Paul's going to go on to criticize the behavior of some of the Corinthians. 
But I want you to notice as we read and pay attention to what Paul shares with us here, a very important detail. He is not critical of those Corinthians who just don't know very much. He's critical of the ones who know a lot and love little. He's critical of those who do not consider the delicate hearts of their brothers and sisters. If you are young in the faith and you're here today, you're going to hear some lofty things spoken in this pulpit. You're going to hear some very, very deep conversations in our Sunday school times, in our Bible studies, in our conversations as we stand on the curb and, 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 and you know, fellowship after church is done. You're going to hear some, some very deep things. But do not think that means that you are unloved here just because you might not understand all of the things that you hear or that you need to seek out a simpler place to worship God. To the contrary, I encourage you, strive along with us. Walk side by side with some of these brothers and sisters that have more experience and knowledge than you. Ask questions. Do not be afraid to want to know more, even if that exposes what you don't know. There's no shame in that. But also know that if you are in Christ, you are a full-fledged member of his family. Regardless of what you know or don't know yet, you belong with the Lord. If you have put your faith and trust in him, you're his son, you're his daughter. It's the result of God's grace in your life, not the knowledge that you have accumulated. So verse 3 is a very fitting conclusion of the matter and that we're wrestling with this morning. Now, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. There's something far more important than what you know. It's whether or not you are known by the God of all creation. And in truth, we know that God knows all things, so there's no one sitting in this room that God doesn't know of. But what Paul means by that is, does God know you in a saving way? Has he redeemed you into his family? Are you known as his child? He not only made you, forming your inward parts before you were even conscious of being a being, but he sustains you every day. Of course he knows of you, but if you love the Lord God, if he has given you a love for him, then you're known by him. You are accounted as one of his sheep. He will never leave you or forsake you, and no one can snatch you out of his hand. Whether it is okay to, to eat this particular kind of meat or not, in Corinth was a symptom of a much bigger issue, a much deeper issue, the issue of mishandling knowledge. And so Paul first addresses what matters most, the issue of the knowledge, the issue of the heart, and next he will deal with the more symptomatic expressions of those errors. And we will cover those in the next couple of weeks. So let's bow our heads in a word of prayer and then our worship team is going to come up and lead us in one more song before we're dismissed. God, we praise you and thank you for the joy that you give to us as we come together and as we put our eyes upon these eternal truths, Lord God. I pray that you would humble us and help us to continue to pursue a better knowledge of you, God. I confess that my knowledge of you is weaker than it needs to be, God. I want to be growing. I want to know more of you, Lord. I want to enjoy my knowledge of you better. And so I pray what many of us here are praying today, God, that you would increase our joy and knowledge, that you would give us a great appetite for the things of eternity, and that our knowledge of Christ would be precious to us, not just for our own benefit, but that we might share it with others, God, and show them how good you are. We love you, Lord, and pray that our worship will continue as we dismiss today in Jesus' name. Amen.